I'm Joyita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. For a long time, I shrank from identifying as disabled. I worked so hard to pass as able-bodied. I'm not sure how convincing I was with a magnifier to read books in large print, but I did try. I wasn't sure if I wanted to belong to a disability community. Would I buckle under the pressure of otherness? Would I feel like I was different? Would I be stigmatized? It's only when I first got to university and found common cause with other disabled people that I first internalized the notion that disability identity could and is a source of pride and strength. If disability was a country, I was finally willing to be a citizen. Today, we discuss disabled country. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Chuita Gupta. My guest today needs no introduction. My guest is in fact Catherine Frazee, known to many of us as a longtime disability advocate, activist and writer. Catherine is also Professor Emeritus at Toronto Metropolitan University, formerly Ryerson University. Catherine has recently compiled a new book, a collection of some of Catherine's writing over the years, going back many decades actually. And the book, is called Dispatches from Disabled Country. Catherine, hello and welcome to the program. I'm so glad you could join us today. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. What does the title mean, Dispatches from Disabled Country? Well, I, I think that your introduction set this up just perfectly because we, uh, we choose many of us as disabled people at a certain point in the trajectory of our lives to uh, embrace our citizenship in disabled country. And we can talk about that a bit more, but I think the title, uh, which was the brainchild of one of, our, one of my editors, um, Michael Orsini and Christine Kelly, the title is really um, intended to evoke a sense of uh, messages, um, perhaps disparate messages, certainly touching on different themes and very much representing different points in time, but messages that come from uh, across the way, come from the the adventures, the explorations, and the discoveries um, that I've been privileged to uh, be part of as my journey through disabled country. The book is a collection of your writing, and you know it goes. Some of your writing goes back over twenty years. What are some of the, the themes explored in the, in the volume? So, you know, if you think about all the writing taken together, uh, what are some of the ideas and themes that come across in the book? That's a really interesting question. Um, I think in the early years, you know, as I've said, this is a, a, a record of my journey. In the early years, some of the pieces really represent uh, discovering the world of disability, the scholarship of disability, the history 
of disabled people and being excited about those discoveries and finding ways to introduce those discoveries and those ideas to, uh, at the time perhaps, primarily non-disabled audiences. And then over time, as I became more involved in the, the disability rights movement and the disability arts and culture movement, they represent, I think, themes of uh, identity, uh, themes of what it means to have human rights, themes of the struggle, uh, for recognition and protection of our human rights uh, and themes of how we express our humanity, how we contribute to, to the art, to culture, to history, to scholarship, to philosophy, to law, uh, to many fields of endeavor. And then just a, a, a third area I would highlight is the relationship uh, that we have to the medical world. Much of our identity as uh, disability rights activists or people who identify as citizens of disabled country may be premised in the idea of a social model of disability that sees our lives and our bodies as something more than a medical problem. Uh, so I think there are challenges to the um, dominance of medicine throughout the narratives that uh, are perhaps also evident when you take a, a big picture look at the uh, but you're such a prolific writer, and you've written so much over the years, poetry, you have a blog, given so many lectures. How did you decide what to include, and more importantly, what to leave out? I know if it were me, I'd want to put everything in. <laughs> I had a lot of help to read. Uh, um, my editors, in fact, you know, I've had a conversation with Michael and Christian, the books editors, years ago, and they have encouraged me to, to write a book, and, uh, and that they were desisting getting it published. But, you know, I was teaching, I was very heavily involved in activist work, and I didn't have time. I'm a great procrastinator. And I write when there's a deadline, but when there's an open invitation, that's a lot harder for me to deliver. So um, to make a long story short, at one point, Michael and Christine came to me and after years of cajoling me to write a book and me coming up empty-handed, they said, you've written a lot. Why don't you give us access to all of your files, your lectures, your public addresses, your creative writing? Just give it all to us, and we'll pick. And so they made the initial selections because I, you know, 
I know you're right uh, to read Scripture a certain extent. You're, you have a certain uh, fondness, maybe for everything you're facing by over time. Oh, but it doesn't all hold up, and uh, your ideas change. And I have to say, when I looked at the whole package, you know, my favorite piece is almost always the last piece I wrote, and uh, deciding what else to include would have been very difficult. Some of their selections, I thought, really, you want to put this on? Just not then, but uh, but then I began to understand the the concept that I, I give them a credit for of chronicling a journey and showing a uh, transition around evolution of thought uh, in the course of not just my lifetime but a few decades of my movement and giving us a sense of the continuing evolution of, uh, of what it means to be disabled. You have um, in the book, uh, you know, uh, the transcript of your speech at the, vis- uh, the vigil for Tracy Latimer. That was in the 19, mid-1990s. Well, the movement has, you know, the time has rolled by, and, you know, I'm sure you have some thoughts about how the disability rights movement has evolved in all of these years, as has your thinking. How has the disability rights movement in Canada evolved? If you look back to the early to mid-90s, when maybe you you got first involved, uh, to where things are at now, what sort of changes have you seen? Yeah, there's so much, and yet so much that remains uh, very deeply embedded in the ableist structures. I think what, you know, some of the things that have evolved are understanding of the complexity and the tenacity of the problem of ableism and language for talking about barriers and uh, discrimination and oppression has evolved to keep up with a, a more and more sophisticated and nuanced analysis of the social problems around disability. I think our appreciation of uh, diversity uh, has thankfully uh, begun to evolve as a long way to go, but um, we're like, I suppose, every other uh, social group we tend to be uh, initially constituted by dominant voices. Those dominant voices are even in the disability sector. In the early days, were white and male. And uh, I think we have evolved to understand that there is much more to be heard, that there are many more to be heard from and much more to be learned from our pluralistic approach uh, to our to our world. I think in terms of well, you referred to the last one years and those were profoundly formative years for me and for many disabled people of my generation. We found 
in ourselves and in our collective uh, movement a strength and a fierceness and a, a grit to fight uh, to defend the lives of disabled people and to demand justice for uh, people like Tracy Latimer. And we haven't ever lost that that sense of collective power, uh, once I think we may have, may I speak for myself, what I perhaps naively believed was a full and unequivocal victory in the outcome of the Latimer case, i.e. the conviction and the uh, arrest incarceration of Robert Lashner, uh, it wasn't that simple. Time has proven that the uh, devaluation of disabled people's lives has uh, continued. It has deep roots and multiple manifestations. And so part of our evolution, our mind anyway, has been learning how very complex and pernicious uh, those eugenic underforces or undercurrents of our uh, culture uh, are and how very hard we have to work to uproot and resist them. So those are just a, a few thoughts. There's much more that can, of course, be said about what has unfolded uh, in the past 30 or 40 years. Those are the things that rise to the surface. When I think about some of what you just said about um, the devaluation of the lives of people with disabilities, one of the things that has troubled me a lot in the last few years is the conversation around medical assistance and dying. Spent a lot of time, you know, I, I produced a documentary about it for this channel. I did a whole lot of other research, and there's such a schism in Canadian society about assisted suicide and people who think it's a dignified way to end someone's life versus people with disabilities and advocates who are saying that it that it it isn't the best option out there. I, in your in one of the uh, essays in the book, you uh, are noted as saying that it's unlike that the, the 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 law is now the fact of of the land. You're not really ever maybe we won't see a change in the law, but we still have to tussle with many of the the debates around medical assistance and dying. Where are you at in terms of the tussle or in terms of trying to resolve some of the debates that the legalization of assisted death have? spawned in Canadian society? Yeah, um, thanks for that question, Joey. Indeed, as you know, the entire first section of the book is, uh, is really primarily focused on this issue of medical assistance and uh, So I'm, I'm very concerned about it. And, you know, I do agree, uh, and certainly said uh, in one of the essays in the book that the Supreme Court's decision on Carter uh, is here to stay at least 
um, for the foreseeable future. I mean, we thought the decision of Rodriguez was here to stay. It was uh, 20 years before California. So, you know, 20 years from now, who can say? But for now, Carter is the law of the land, but where all the tussles, uh, I think, begin is in our various ways of interpreting Carter. And certainly my interpretation, and uh, you can read about it, there are certainly legal analysts who would support the proposition that Kaiser is meant to be a system of, uh, or the medical system in dying, is meant to be a way of easing people who are already in the process of dying toward death by giving them a little more control over the precise time and manner of that death. I would argue that that was what we had in Canada's original made law, that it was a law that, as the Attorney General at the time said, struck a delicate balance between the requirements for uh, respecting autonomy and the requirements for protecting the rights and the dignity of all persons. Um, Carter, uh, the original interpretation of Carter, was that made would be available to people who were approaching the end of their natural lives. So whether you have lived your life as a disabled person, or a non-disabled person, it wouldn't matter. There was no discrimination. If you were reaching the end of that life, and if you chose to bring it to a close a little differently than allowing your illness to uh, run its course, then a doctor would be authorized at your request to assist you to die. But since then, starting in 2020, we have seen a relentless expansion of the meaning and the reach of medically assisted death. We now have a new law that I don't think is here to stay. I think it's a law that's very flawed and hasn't been yet challenged at the Supreme Court. And that is the law that came into being uh, in 2021 that expanded medical assistance in dying beyond persons who are, who are actually dying to any person with any disabling medical condition. Now, it's still not available to a healthy, non-disabled person. It's restricted only to persons who are disabled in some 
way. And that's where I think we have entered into a terrain that violates the human rights of disabled people. And beyond that, of course, there are many further very controversial expansions proposed from this legislation, expanding into the realm of mental illness, expanding into uh, the lives of people under the 18, under the age of 18, so my arms, and expanding around the edges of actually consenting or asking for it by considering the possibility of making advance requests are and we'll get into all of that complex territory but I will say to each answer to your question that this is where all of the uh, controversies the advocacy the uh, the schism as you indicate uh, that has continued our debates on this issue really centers on how uh, how we define medical assistance in dying. Is it for the dying or is it for the living? And who is going to be uh, rich? Uh, who is going to be caught up? And the expansion of this regime, how will doctors be accountable for decisions and, and, and actions that go on in very private spheres? And how much will we tolerate as a society as we discover more? cases where people are supposedly choosing to die, but for reasons that have very little to do with their um, mental condition and everything to do with their social condition. So what will be the limits of medical assistance in dying? And if we are clear about those limits, what will be the costs uh, in human life, but also to our social fabric? And I always find myself wondering, you know, if we make medical assistance in dying available to more and more people, what happens to our social obligations to create a, a world where People are not devalued because of their disabilities. What happens to that social contract that we might all have? Anyways, that's just me, uh, you know, that's just my thoughts about it. I'm just looking at the clock as well, Catherine. It's just about time to go. In a nutshell, probably in about 30 seconds, what advice would you give to a young person, a person who has recently realized their citizenship in disabled country? and who would like to stay in disabled country to remain there without feeling burnt out or pessimistic? How can they continue to find joy in their lives? Thanks for the question um, to that person or those persons. Be proud of who you are. Uh, take care of yourselves 
and of each other, and you will find, as you meet more of your comrades in a disabled country, you will find people who inspire you, people who care for you, people who support you, and people who are cheering you on. Welcome to Disabled Country, and may you flourish as I have. Catherine Frizzy, thank you very much for speaking to me today. It was a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much, Teresa. My pleasure. Catherine Frizzy is a longtime disability activist, author, and has recently published a collection of her works, Dispatches from Disabled Country. And I do hope you have a chance to take uh, to, to read the book. Uh, it's in short essays and other formats. You don't have to read it in one go, uh, but a book that gathers together in one place years, if not decades, of wisdom. If you'd like to get in touch with us with suggestions for future programming, or if you pick up Catherine's book, Dispatches from Disabled Country, and you want to let us know what you thought about it, you can do so in a couple of ways. You can give us a, a, a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. Don't forget to leave your permission to play the audio on the program. You could also find us on Twitter, now X. At AMI Audio, use the hashtag PulseAMI so that they know that the tweet is meant for this program. And of course, if you feel like 280 characters isn't long enough, you are welcome to write us an email, write to feedback at ami.ca. We would love to hear from you. I will try to read out some of the great comments we get on YouTube and other places as well if I get a chance. Uh, but it has been a really wonderful hearing from so many of you and hearing your feedback. Please don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel as well as to the podcast if that's where you picked up this program. Our videographer today has been Jake Kemp. In for Marco Flolo today, our technical producer is Jordan Steves. Ryan Delahanty is coordinator for AMI Podcasts. Andy Frank is the manager for AMI Audio. And I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. Thanks for listening.